So last month, uh, we began talking about work, and we're going to do this for a couple more times at least. Um, And just to recap a couple of things from last month. So we spent most of our waking hours at work uh, throughout the day and throughout the week. The great percentage of our, our waking hours are spent at work. Some of us like what we do during those hours, and some of us don't really like that much what we do during those hours. But work, like all of our lives, all area of our lives, is ground for formation as Jesus' students in his school of life. It's the same as in our marriage, in our family life, in our, as neighbors, as friends in the church. Work is just as much part of the ground for transformation into Christ-likeness as those areas. And as we learn how to live from Jesus, he expects that it will transform who we are at work that who we are at work will more and more reflect his image and his character. And kind of, again, I referenced this verse last time, uh, but it's one of my favorites for just talking about the comprehensiveness of Jesus' school of life. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. It's There's nothing that falls outside of that, and work certainly doesn't fall outside of that. It's a a comprehensive picture of discipleship, of being in Jesus' school of life. It's, It's who we are, wherever we are, all the time, and that includes the time that we spend at work. And today what I want to talk about specifically is work and identity. Um, Thinking about identity relative to our work, because how we think and feel about ourselves is significantly shaped by our work. Would you agree with that? How we, how we, the kind of the self-concept that we have as men is significantly shaped by our work. We get a lot of our identity from our work. And that might be based on one of several things. So it might be based on what I had to achieve in order to do this kind of work, the kind of degrees that I had to work for and attain? Um, Do I feel like I have a success story where I worked hard and now I enjoy an interesting and and lucrative career? Or did I just kind of back into this thing that I do every day and it was never part of the plan? It was never what I was going to do. Maybe it was a just a stopgap job for a while that now I've been in for several years and don't see any way out of it. So how we, think about, uh, how we think about how we came into our jobs can have a lot to do with uh, the self-concept that we have with work. Income level is another one. Um, what I make can tend to influence how I think about my work and the nobility of my work and how I think about myself as a provider. Now, a lot of that gets tied to income level. Also, the prestige of the kind of work that I do. Do I feel that my work is kind of in that valuation of occupations that people regard highly. Uh, We know that our society reacts to certain titles, positively and negatively. So when we think about what we have to do to achieve where we are, or income level, or prestige, all that kind of gets rolled into how we think about our work and how we feel about ourselves and think about ourselves related to that work. So following so far? Okay. So. Uh, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors was a guy named Robert Mulholland, and uh, he, he wrote this book called Invitation to a Journey, and Dr. Mulholland says, 
We tend to evaluate our own meaning, value, and purpose, as well as those of others, not by the quality of our being, but by what we do and how effectively we do it. And then he goes on to to say this. It's a little lengthy, but bear with me because I think it's very good. He says, I have a little game that I play when traveling in airplanes and airports. I regularly hear strangers meeting strangers, and usually within 30 seconds to a minute, one asks the other, what do you do? And we do this all the time, right? Especially Friday night, somebody new comes in. It's not long, 30 seconds or so. So what do you do? Well, when someone asks me that question, I respond, I teach in a graduate school. Invariably, I can see by their response, their body language, that my doing places me in a fairly high category of their value structure. Of course, their next question is either, what do you teach or where do you teach? When I say New Testament or a theological seminary, in most cases, I can see from their reaction that they immediately and radically reverse their evaluation. (laughs) From a relatively high place in their ranking system, I am quickly demoted to one of the lower echelons. And he says this, every time this has happened, the person has not even known my name. I have been categorized, labeled, cubbyholed, and put away in their system of values simply by virtue of what I do. I think we can all probably relate to that in some way. I once, held, I once had a title of Associate Director for Philanthropy Communications and Strategic Messaging. It didn't, it didn't even fit on a business card. And, and I would share the title with people and they would say, what does that mean? And I'd say, I don't know. But it sounds pretty important, doesn't it? It's really long. There's a guy named Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker. And he wrote a book called Let Your Life Speak. It's a real short little book. It's good. And he talked about a time when he was approached about becoming the president of a small college. And that wasn't really anything in his background, but he was approached about it. And so uh, being a Quaker, he gathered what he called a clearness committee. And a clearness committee is basically getting together some people who will ask you some probing questions about why you want to do something. Have you considered these things? Not giving advice, but it's seeking counsel through getting clarity through their questions. And so, uh, so he got this group together, his clearness committee, and Palmer writes this. He says, halfway through the process, someone asked, what would you most like about becoming president? The simplicity of that question loosed me from my head and lowered me into my heart. Well, I would not like having to give up my writing and my teaching. I would not like the politics of the presidency. I would not like... Gently but firmly, the person who had posed the question interrupted me. May I remind you that I asked what you would most like? I resumed my sullen but honest litany. I would not like having to give up my summer vacations. I would not like, once again, the questioner called me back to the original question. But this time I felt compelled to give the only honest answer I possessed. Well, said I in the smallest voice I possess, I guess what I most like is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. There was a long silence. After which the person said, Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? (laughs) 
I think this kind of thing happens to us where we think about uh, the prestige of things and, and ascending into things. So is this dynamic applicable to you? Can, you? can you relate to how we think about ourselves relative to work, whether income or prestige or, or things like that? Is it worth going on? Okay. <laughs> so it's playing the identity game, and this gets us into, it can get us into serious trouble because work was never meant to be a source for our identity. God never made work with the intention that that's where we would get our identity. Work is something that we do. It is not something that we are. It's something that we do. But finding our identity in our work is very subtle, and it often creeps in without us really consciously being aware that it's happening. And we play the game. And we play the game without knowing that we're playing the game in our evaluation and creating those valuation systems. In Luke 14, Jesus tells the parable about not taking the better seats at the table when you're invited to a party. So he says, it says, now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And I think Jesus does an incredible job of painting a picture of real embarrassment. Because he says, you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. It's this kind of long, drawn-out walk of humiliation down to the lowest place. And, you know, people will talk about Roman culture, they'll talk about other cultures from antiquity, or they'll talk about cultures in, in Asia today as being honor-shame culture. Have you ever heard of honor-shame cultures? And, and they'll talk about them as if we don't live in one. Well, we live in one. <laughs> We live in an honor-shame culture. It doesn't work exactly the same way as it did in those other cultures and in Asia today. It's, it's much more subtle, but we certainly live in an honor-shame culture. And when things happen, when, when somebody loses their job or when somebody gets a promotion, we do this kind of mental, either somebody taking the lowest place and walking with shame or they're moving up to the higher place. And we have those valuation structures going on in our mind. It's just as much of an honor-shame culture, and we feel it too. If you were to lose your job, you know, if you were to think about what it meant to suddenly become unemployed, you know, how would, how would you react to that? What, what kind of things would you be thinking about yourself? I think we play that game all the time. How do I compare? Is my work acceptable to this person that I've just met? I've only talked to for two minutes. Is the kind of work that I do, is that something that's up here in their eyes or is it something that's down here in their eyes? Am I, am I greater or less in their eyes because of a certain income level or prestige level? Um, someone once called this dynamic the generalized other. When we think about how people would respond to certain news about our work or when we think about our work, if we were going to introduce ourselves to somebody, somebody it's the generalized other. It's like thinking about the world as a bunch of movie critics who are there to score our lives based on the things that, that, we, that we do for a living. Does that make sense? And if we play that game, if you play that game, then what you do will become more important than who you are. And you'll think a lot more about what you do and the bang that you get out of that buck than you will about who you are becoming in your character. 
and, and that what you do will begin to define you. And what I do begins to define me. And I start to lose my eye on character and who I'm becoming. We do this with others, too. We, we measure other people's lives by our own yardsticks of what we think is up here and what we think is down here. And we make broader assumptions about people and about their character based upon their job, their income, and such. Now, we might say, you know, if I were to ask you, do you do that? You might say no. But I think we do it in very subtle ways. We don't, don't do it in ways that we would maybe verbally express. But we can often make character assumptions about people based on the kind of work that they do. Uh, and it's wrong. That's not what God invented work for, not to be a system by which we evaluate one another. He invented work so that we could partner with him in completing his creation and come to know him and ourselves more fully. He didn't invent work so that we could impress people or be impressed by people. And so I just want to say a quick word of encouragement for the underemployed in the room. If you, if you have a job that you feel like you're underemployed, that there is maybe more that you wanted to do in your working life. Uh, you know, today is graduation day at UK and probably a lot of other places. And at, at the commencement speeches, there's probably going to be a familiar refrain of, you can be anything that you want to be. You can be anything that you want to be. If you're just willing to go out and work hard enough you can be anything that you want to be, uh, which is patently untrue. I mean, just unequivocally untrue. I wanted to be a center fielder for a major league baseball team for the Chicago Cubs. That was never, ever going to happen, no matter how much I ever practiced in my entire life. But, and so the, the case is made, you know, find what your passion is and then go out and, and, and match a job to it. I think what is more true. I'm not saying it's absolutely impossible to be anything that you want to be. But I think what is more true is that you can be anything that you don't want to be. You can be anything that you don't want to be. If you're doing something right now that you don't want to be doing, it's not what you had planned on to be doing for a career, to be doing for your working life, you can do anything that you don't want to be. In Christ, you can. And I, and I think about Joseph. You know, who was sold into slavery, had the, had the dreams that he had, and was sold into slavery in Egypt, and was Potiphar's servant. And he was really good at it. It's not, it wasn't part of his plan. It wasn't what he wanted. It's not how he would have drawn things up. But he was really good at what he did. It wasn't what he would have picked, but it's where he found himself, and the Lord was with him, and he succeeded in everything that he did, became top servant over the household. And then because he was done wrong, he was thrown into the dungeon, which was an even worse place than where he had been. It was even less where he wanted to be, even less what he would have picked for himself. But the Lord was with him, and in time he was put in charge of the prisoners because he did such a good job. And so by the grace of God, which we can ask for all the time and which we should ask for all the time, we can be anything that we don't want to be. If you're in the job that you're in and it's not what you would have picked, but it's where you need to be right now because we do have a responsibility to provide and um, we can't just sit that out. If you're doing something that is not, was never your dream job, by God's grace, you can be that. And it has nothing to do with your identity. It doesn't have a thing to do with your identity. God honors your honest work, whatever it is. 
whatever field it is. If it's good, honest work, God honors it. And God's pleased with it when you do it. So I hope that's a word of encouragement for anybody who's doing anything that they don't really want to be doing. The only, I want to talk a little bit about the only safe way to understand your identity. The only safe way for us to understand our identity. So Galatians 4.9 says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And the emphasis there is, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. There's only one safe way, really, for us to understand our identity, and that's that we are known by God. We're known by God, and we're loved by God. And that's the only safe place for us to put our identity, that God knows us, and that God loves us. Every other identity marker that we might go by can be taken away. Every other thing that we might apply and make our identity in some way, even a small way, can be taken away. Your identity according to your wealth and your possessions, that can, that can certainly be taken away. Your identity according to your reputation, that can be taken away. Your identity according to the prestige of your work, that can be taken away. Your identity according to the roles that you have in life can be taken away. And this one's, this one's hard to talk about, but you know, if, if, if the thinkable but unthinkable were to happen and I were to lose every member of my family, all those roles would be taken away. I'd no longer be a father. I'd no longer be a husband. That role, those roles, they would be gone. That part of my identity would be gone. Even your identity as a living and breathing person will one day be taken away. One day you'll be gone from the earth. And all the roles and distinctions that contributed to your identity will be gone. But God will still know you. God will still know you. That part of your identity will remain. God will still know you. God will still love you. That will not be lost. So if you're known by God, as, as Paul says in Galatians 4, then you cannot be lost, ever. Even if all the other identity markers are taken away. And that's why being known by God is the only safe place for us to put our identity. It's the ground zero of where we have to start. All the roles that we have get added to that. But they're not our identity. They're roles that we have for the time that we have them. But the only safe place to put our identity is that we are known by God and loved by God. And to broaden this identity a little bit more fully, we're God's redeemed children who are unconditionally loved by the Father. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, as it says in Colossians 1. Transferred from the domain of darkness and into the realm of his beloved son, his kingdom. We're friends of the king. We are friends of the king, Jesus. And he calls us friends and brothers and sisters. And that will always be true. And when we die, we won't stop being his friends. We'll still be his friends. It will always be true. We have eternal life now. We have eternal life now, which is fellowship with God. And if eternal life just makes you think of living forever, kind of this just perpetual living life the way it is now, or even like kind of in an elevated state, eternal life is fellowship with God. It's fellowship with God that never ends. 
Think of, think of eternal life as fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is fellowship with God that it never ends. And when we're known by God, we'll have fellowship with Him that, that will never end. They can never be taken away from us. So we're friends of the King. We've been transferred into His kingdom. We're unconditionally loved by God. We have fellowship with God. And none of that can ever be taken away. That's the only safe place for us to have our identity. Does that make sense? I think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul got out of the identity game. And if you think about in Philippians 3, he talks about how he had all the identity markers that mattered in his society. Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, and, and whatnot. I won't read that, that part. But he had all the identity markers, and he, he rested his identity in it until he met Christ. And then he got out of the identity game altogether. And so in, in chapter 3, 7 to 11, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All those identity markers, they're just rubbish, just trash. Actually, in the Greek, it's a swear word. In order that I may gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Got out of the identity game altogether for the sake of knowing Christ. That's the one thing. He wanted to put his identity in the one thing that would never change and could never be taken from him. He says it a little bit more succinctly in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And there's perhaps no bigger way in which we need to be crucified to the world than in how we attach our, our identity to work, right? On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground doesn't hold up. Amen? Amen. Amen. What I want to do, uh, like last time,